ESPN LA 710. Welcome to the experience here on ESPN LA. I'm Laferne Cusack. For more information, uh, please log on to ESPNLA.com and go to the experience experience page or check me out on Twitter at Laferne Cusack. Today we're talking your health with Dr. Clayton Lau from the City of Hope. Dr. Lau, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about City of Hope and how you got on board. Well, City of Hope is a national cancer center uh, in Doherty, which is near Pasadena. After graduating medical school in Boston, I decided uh, to be a cancer surgeon. I did my training in Boston, came back uh, to Southern California, where I'm from. I trained at City of Hope, and I've been lucky to be there for the last uh, 12 years working. It's been a, it's been a great place um, for you know, for me, you know, honestly, you know, for it's a great place to for our patients. It's a really we're treating a lot of patients uh, in the local area in Southern California, and a lot of people fly from originally or nationally or internationally to be treated uh, at the City of Hope. Very much so. I mean, you guys have great outreach, and you do a lot for the community. So it's a pleasure having you on. Can you talk about some of your uh, community uh, practice sites and what you guys are doing? Sure. You know, we at the main campus, which is in Doherty, we do a lot of the more acute, um, more complex things such as bone marrow transplant um, for leukemia, lymphoma. Also, we do a lot of our complex surgeries um, for the really advanced, locally advanced or metastatic diseases uh, and also for patients that are on clinical trials. In addition, we have quite a few uh, community sites. So we have um, sites where they have smaller cancer centers where the physicians will go out to the community and provide care out there. And they can be anywhere from, uh, from Southern California, from about in Lancaster to Palm Springs to Pasadena and to Santa Clarita. So it, these are all sites that are probably somewhere between sometimes only 10 miles, but sometimes as far as 80 miles away from the main campus. And the nice thing about that is that we're providing care for the patients there. It makes it easier for the patients to access especially for those that are a little ill. Um, so so the, some of those frequent visits, uh, it's easier for the patients, especially if they're going through chemotherapy. Absolutely. Can you tell us why you chose urology? You know, I think it's uh, when you choose a field, it's, uh, you know, you kind of try to do pick a spot or pick a field where you emulate pe- your, your peers that you um, when you're going through medical school. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, in residency, so I think in medical school, I, I went to Tufts University of Boston. I had some really good mentors in Boston who I wanted to emulate. They seem like they, you know, provide good care to the patients. They're impassioned uh, about their field. So I also wanted to do something that was surgical. So that's how I got into it. Uh, I got lucky in, into getting into the field, and I love it. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great field. Uh, it's always, another thing, it's very, urology is very progressive, keeping up with, you know, technology and also medicine. So it's, it's, it's been, it's been fun. Right. So uh, speaking of, you know, keeping up with technology, one thing people talk about is prostate cancer and it's still prevalent today, but there has been a lot of advances on prostate cancer. Can you talk about those advances along uh, the years? Sure. So, you know, prostate cancer is the most uh, common solid organ tumor for men in the United States. One in six men uh, get prostate cancer. Um, you know, we've done a good job identifying patients that have prostate cancer over the years. Um, probably about 17 to 20 years ago, with the advent of the PSA, we're finding cancers earlier. 
um, also understanding the disease better. Uh, over the years, the uh, the um, chance of dying of prostate cancer has gone down, even though still it's still the second leading cause of cancer-related death, secondary to lung cancer. Um, but there are different um, ways of treating prostate cancer surgically um, with uh, taking out the prostate with robotics to other ablative ways of doing uh, radiation or HIFU or cryoablation have improved. In addition, many of the patients that have aggressive disease uh, with metastatic disease, there are a lot of new drugs that are out there uh, that have really improved patients' uh, quality of life and extended their life uh, over the past uh, few years. My dad, he had prostate cancer. He was like in a hospital for like two days and then he was out. It was like, I, I want to say that, it, please let me know. I'm I know I'm saying it wrong, but yeah. in my head, um, it was, uh, they had these silver balls, I guess. Yep. That, it's, it's, yeah. Can yeah. you explain that? Sure. So one of the ways that you can treat patients is radiation. So radiation is usually delivered two ways. One is to do it externally when a patient goes to their machine and they deliver it from outside in. And that's kind of the standard radiation with external beam radiation or tomotherapy or Beam therapy, but the other way it is actually to implant radioactive seeds into the prostate. So that's called brachytherapy. So brachytherapy is usually while patients asleep, they'll put these probes through the perineum, which is between the scrotum and the anus, and they'll drop off these seeds. And these seeds will emit the radiation over a span of a nine months. Oh. Um, so the advantage of the patient who picked who picks the seed implantation is that they will. Uh, uh, they don't have to go for eight weeks for the treatment. They just go once uh, to the hospital, get the seeds implanted, um, and the radiation gets distributed along the prostate. And they found the outcomes of doing it this way is as good as if they had the treatments uh, once a day for eight weeks. So that's one of the things that so one of the ways that people are being treated with radiation for prostate cancer. We do it at City Hope also. Um, for some people, they don't want that. Some people would rather have standard radiation, but. The brachytherapy certainly is another is an option is an option that's a, or a very good option too. I did not know that. So yeah. at the end of the six months, do they take it out or you leave them in, Ashley? So they just run out of the they run out of the radiation. So they're usually the it's iodine one twenty five emits the radiation, but after a while, it's just kind of imagine like batteries in in your flashlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, the the batteries will run out, so or the the radiation runs out. So you leave them in. There's quite a few of them in there. When when you do brachytherapy, you put about 100 to 125 in there, depending on how big the prostate is. And then do they dissolve or? No, they stay in there. So it's interesting. You take an x-ray mm-hmm. and they're still there. They're inert. They're really tiny, tiny little oh. pellets. Uh, but they should stay in the prostate. They don't, they won't, and it won't cause any harm by just leaving them in there. So what about now? What are some advances that have come along uh, for treating prostate cancer now? Well, I think in the last decade, and it's become widely accepted, uh, if for patients, many patients, young patients that have uh, localized prostate cancer, robotic surgeries has is, is really become the standard and more popularized. Uh, first, the um, first robotic prostate was done in, in 2000, uh, and over the years, it's become the standard way of doing surgery beforehand. When I first started over a decade ago, the standard way of doing surgery is to make an incision to get to work in the deep pelvis to take out the prostate, the lymph nodes, and try to spare the nerves and sew everything back together. It was a very difficult, very bloody operation, but now with robotics, 
using all the things of tech, modern technology that you and I um, love and have, and uh, with the iPhones and 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 uh, three-dimensional fiber optic telescopes, mm-hmm. now you can use all that technology for surgery. So you can, you a surgeon will make small holes, hook the robot up to the patient, sit at what looks like to be a video game terminal, and use a robot which has a magnification 12 times the human eye to control that robot to do the same surgery. Wow. But, but in this situation, you can zoom in and zoom out just like we talked about with the iPhone. So you can see a lot better. Mm-hmm. You can actually um, see around better. You can see there's less bleeding, so you can be more meticulous with the operation. So at the beginning, over about 10 years ago, it was kind of new, but now with experience, I think it's, people have gotten, uh, surgeons have gotten better at it um, and also taught other um, other doctors in the area. So it was beforehand, it was only you know available at big cancer centers or academic centers. Now it's available at many hospitals, uh, even the, the local community hospitals. And um, it's a machine that a lot of people use for other things, such as hysterectomies to um, kidney removals, uh, colon removal. So it's, the technology really the, has expanded in terms of indications for surgery. So when you go in with the robotics, are you you're going in to cut the cancer out, and you guys can make it more localized? Is that correct? Correct. So we it's a, it's a better way of uh, doing the surgery. We can see better, and the goal of the surgery is actually to remove the prostate, including all the cancer, taking out the lymph nodes, and then sewing everything back together. And it's actually you know depending on the patient. A lot of times, um, can be the best chance to cure. In addition, if a patient does have advanced disease, you can, one could always give radiation therapy afterwards. So, um, but for for most younger people that have a significant amount of prostate cancer, it is the most common treatment. Is actually the, the robotic prostatectomy. Let's say you are active in your health care and you go every year for checkups. You're regular. You maintain. You eat well. How fast does prostate cancer grow, or is that based on individual basis? It's really an individual basis, but it's a great question. Overall, it's pretty relatively slow if you compare it to other cancers. There are really a lot of terrible cancers that are out there that grow incredibly fast, such as pancreatic cancer, brain brain cancer, lung cancers, and some of, my, you know, some of the kidney cancers and, uh, and bladder cancers can do that. Prostate cancer can be aggressive, but not as aggressive. So many people that are diagnosed with prostate cancer, even when the ones are more aggressive, they might, it might take five to ten years before they succumb to it. So these things are slower growing on the average. Mm-hmm. Um, so now identifying them earlier is important, and, and but also uh, learning how to deal with them uh, is very important. And also we have to even consider um, even for many, some patients, if they're diagnosed later in life, to see if we even want to treat them. And, and because sometimes it's easy to, when we find the disease, just to go ahead and treat it, but we might be over-treating a patient and affect their quality of life. So that's another thing that's been kind of in research over the last year is trying not to over-treat patients uh, with cancer that's slow-growing. What kind of symptoms should we look for? Like, I mean, if we don't know that we have, you know, prostate cancer, what, sure. yeah, what are the, some of the symptoms if you're not diagnosed? Some of the symptoms of prostate cancer is um, blood in the urine and back pain. But really, most prostate cancers are found on diagnostic blood tests, such as the PSA test, which people get as a screening tool 
uh, men will get it once a year, twice a year. Many times it'll start screening at 50 years of age. So it'll be found typically earlier on. In the 1970s and 80s, most of the time that prostate cancer was diagnosed was unfortunately it was too late. They started to have back pain mm-hmm. or problems with shortness of breath, and they would find it when it's too late. Now we're finding the cancer is much earlier at a much more curable situation. So nowadays is that most of the time when you see an, a, their doctor or a man sees their, a man sees it, um, uh, goes sees their physicians, many times they'll get uh, a rectal exam just to examine, make sure there's no firmness or hardness, and also a PSA uh, to see if it's elevated. If the PSA is elevated or they're exam is abnormal, then we would uh, recommend a prostate biopsy. And then from there, how long does it take if, if um, the treatment is went well and, you know, maybe you don't have to have surgery or whatever? What is the recovery? It really depends on the treatment. So, you know, thankfully, let's say if one has surgery, we had talked about um, that surgery actually most people are back on their feet right away uh, and they're back to work within uh, you know, probably two, three weeks. Uh, for other treatments, if you actually had radiation, um, most people work while they're getting their radiation um, and don't usually have to take too much time off at all, um, which is which is kind of nice. Um, if a patient uh, has more extensive disease, then they might need to take a little extra time off, especially for those patients that have advanced disease and they ha- have to be on chemotherapy. Now, for the radiation, I know some people with cancer uh, who went through it said that it's really, <laughs> really hard on the body. Um, are, do you see anything coming up down the line that will replace radiation? You know, I think that radiation still is a good modality. Um, most patients do relatively well. There are different ways. I think um, I see radiation getting better, to be honest with you. I think the machines are getting better where the side effects are more just localized. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are different ways to, I think really the future for radiation uh, and also any ablative therapy is imagine if we had better ways to image uh, the prostate and didn't know exactly where the cancer is. And right now we don't know exactly, mm-hmm. but if we could figure out exactly where the cancer is with specific scans that maybe would have be labeled with a marker for, for the specific cancer, then we can actually just radiate the bad areas and leave the good tissue there. But that's something, you know, I think may happen hopefully the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, it's going to, there's a lot of research on this because if you were able to do this, you could probably have less side effects on patients, especially if let's say cancer is just localized to one little area mm-hmm. and we can just treat that area as opposed to just kind of carpet bombing everything and, and covering everything. But with that, probably causing more side effects. Dr. Lau, let's talk about bl- uh, bladder. Sure. How would you go about diagnosing bl- bladder cancer or if something is extremely wrong? You know, bladder cancer is a big, is, is a large problem, and bl- less common than prostate cancer, but it is a, probably one of the most expensive uh, healthcare problems in cancer in the United States. Um, it's getting less and less but more aggressive, on the flip side, more aggressive. But one of the risk, one of the major risk factors of bladder cancer is smoking. And that's one of the things, bad things about smoking is a lot of the, it really increases the risk of bladder cancer. It, is, it also is a, a disease that you usually find later in life, in the late 60s or early 70s. The way most patients present or the way they find it is basically blood in the urine. 
So, you know, you know, if they're urinating or avoiding on a toilet, what they'll see is a bright red blood that's being peed out. Mm-hmm. Um, in that situation, they see the urologist to for an evaluation. Uh, if if um, if they you know what they usually do for an evaluation is what they call a cystoscopy. What they do is to put a telescope um, through the urethra to look in the bladder to physically look if there's a mass there. Um, but it's something that you know you want to take care of too soon, uh, as soon as possible, because they can be aggressive and they can spread. What about uh, just problems with your uh, bladder in general? I read this article about uh, a gentleman who had to use, um, you know, what's that bag on the side you have to use? Like, you can't pee out, you have to... Oh, like a, uh, an ileoconduit il- il- or a bag? Or he pees into that bag. Uh, did he have to catheterize himself? Yeah, ca- yes, yes. Okay. Can you so explain that? Sure. So some people, you know, the bladder is a reservoir. It holds the urine. So imagine when uh, when you got to go pee, that bladder is holding everything. But usually for most people, they can just kind of be able to uh, relax the sphincter and let that urine come out. Um, so most people have the ability to do that. Unfortunately, sometimes some people can't, even though the urine is there in, in that reservoir, can't relax enough where that opening opens up. So what happens is that the bladder gets, sorry, the urine stays in the bladder and that urine can actually go back to the kidney and cause damage. So to relieve that, some people, men or women, will have to put a catheter in through their urethra or their penis to empty that reservoir so that old urine isn't staying there. And it sounds descriptive, but when the problem is when you have old urine in there, mm-hmm. it tends to get infected. Um, and so you want to get it out before you, you know, before the infection starts, or you want to also, in addition to that, help prevent any kidney dysfunction. Right, because that leads to kidney failure or may Correct. lead to Definitely, kidney. definitely. If, if in a worst-case scenario, it actually does. So that's why you'll hear of some people having to catheterize themselves, you know, four to six times a day. And and it's not uncommon for many, uh, some people that have neurogenic blenders or they're born with spinal issues, mm-hmm. like spina bifida. In addition, or people that have uh, that are much older that have um, in a large prostate, and the medications that they used to use don't work anymore. So a man will actually have to catheterize himself a few times a day. Can you fix that? You could do surgery to remove part of the prostate and shave it out. Um, that's the classic um, way of fixing it. It works really well. Um, and for some people, if they're really sick at this age, sometimes the, the patients are 80 or 90 years of age, um, and, you know, sometimes the surgery is a little more uh, aggressive um, in those patients, especially if they're on blood thinners, but they'll have to catheterize themselves. But, you know, there are surgical options to fix this problem. It seems very painful. <laughs> yeah, usually they're asleep for it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So uh, you also uh, are an expert in testicular cancer. You know, a lot of people talk about steroids and... Can you talk about the ster- steroids and the effects on the testicles? Yes. <laughs> you know, actually, there's so testicular cancer is probably the least common cancers that we deal with, um, but it's the most common cause, uh, most common cancer in young men. Um, when we're talking right. about young men, these are 20s and 30s in terms of solid cancers. You know, the non-solid tumor can- uh, cancers that are very common for younger uh, men are actually leukemia and lymphoma. For solid cancers, which you'll see more often with uh, kids in college or, you know, kids in the military, 
is uh, testicular cancer. The risk factors um, are essentially, you know, exposure to uh, mumps as a child, um, the, and, and if the mother was exposed to estrogen, and 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 he was, you know, the patient was suggest, uh, exposed to that with estrogen. Then, thirdly, is uh, if they have had uh, undescended testicles uh, as a youngster, they're very thankfully they're uncommon. Um, but when you find it, many times it's very curable. They're aggressive, but you can. Uh, what we found is with the chemotherapies that are out there, they've really made a huge difference in survival. In regards to steroids, steroids um, can affect actually a lot of things in terms of fertility, uh, usually fertility, also can affect the um, the hormone production, where there's a, which causes a lot of the side effects. But in regards to steroids, it doesn't increase the chance of testicular cancer, but it, one of the really impactful things that it does cause, it causes a lot of issues with uh, infertility down the road. Um, for, people, for, for men that actually will do steroids. Um, in addition, there's a lot of side effects like gynecomastia, which is basically a man will develop breasts like women, uh, which can be painful also. So mm-hmm. that's one of the uh, negatives of, of having this, these exogenous ster- anabolic steroids people use uh, for athletic performance. And in regards to the estrogen, if the female is pregnant and she's exposed to estrogen, how do you get exposed to estrogen? Uh, these are just uh, medications they may be on before uh, oh. they're pregnant. So if the mother is on estrogen while she's pregnant, that increases the risk that the, the baby will have testicular cancer. Oh. What about some of the environmental factors? Does that take part in? For testicular cancer, not. Yeah. there really isn't too many uh, environmental factors for that. I mean, um, the one that is environmental risk are, you know, penile cancer, which is really co- uncommon too. Um, but for testicular cancers, it's it's mostly uh, sporadic or bad luck, uh, or some of these risk factors we talked about. Very interesting. Yeah. So, can you give us some tips on how to stay healthy? And I don't know if I can say cancer free, but I mean, sure. no, definitely, absolutely. So, as a you know, urologist oncologist, um, I think the most important things uh, are a couple of things. Number one is uh, what we know is that. They're one of the risk factors for prostate cancer, kidney cancer, um, and, and actually many other cancers in not my field, like colon cancer, is obesity. So that's obviously becoming a bigger issue throughout the United States really? and other, in other countries. So there is a link into increased incidence of these cancers for patients that are obese, not only the having getting cancer, but aggressive cancers. So there are some dietary factors that are important. Uh, for instance, for prostate cancer, if you look at the incidence of prostate cancers in Asian Americans, they have the best diets in terms of less red meat. They have the least chance of getting prostate cancer uh, 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 compared to other individuals. But if you look at a second-generation Asian American like myself who, who loves to go to In-N-Out, who loves <laughs> to go uh, eat pizza, it actually my risk of getting prostate cancer now is going to be as is the same essentially as a Caucasian. So these environmental factors really matter in terms of uh, getting cancer, and specifically, you know, the prostate, uh, kidney, colon. Here's some of the the, the the most common ones. 
Yeah, that's what I heard about, like, red meat and men. It's all in moderation, I yeah. think. I mean, I think, um, but certainly I think most of, most Americans over, overeat it, but, um, and, I, and that probably includes myself, but uh, I would say that it's, it is a big issue. I think people are hopefully recognizing it more and we're to try to educate them more about it. Um, but that, that's, that's one thing one should avoid. Um, smoking is a, is, is another thing that's a, a risk factor for many cancers, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, lung cancer, um, you know, for a woman, cervical cancer. It really, really increases the risk of those sort of cancers. That's, a, that's another um, a modifiable risk uh, that you can, can try to work on also. Wow. Now, as far as the treatment goes, just to get back to, like, the City of the Pope and what you guys do to um, help people with prostate cancers and various cancers, is the technology really different at the City of Hope from, say, you know, another hospital in the area, or is it? Is we it... have, um, so I think we have the latest and greatest of all technologies for the radiation, uh, for surgery. We always have the newest ones. We're actually in the forefront of helping design and developing the newest ones. I think there's actually a lot of good hospitals in the, you know, the big academic centers have that exposure to. Mm-hmm. In addition, we have a lot of experience dealing with patients in um, in all the different cancers also. So it's it's a nice a mix of the two things. So many patients, when they come, have uh, all the availability to get the best technology, the most experience. In addition, they'll, be, they'll have the opportunities for clinical trials for those patients that um, are limited uh, at other sites, especially with novel drugs or other techniques. And if we're looking for a doctor, a specific doctor, what should we look for when choosing what's good for us? You know, I think it's a great question. So I think, you know, and I think it's unlike a lot of things that are out there in in social media and online internet now, you know, before, and, you know, you can look up things with Yelp typically or, you know, the go through reviews. But it's interesting in medicine, you don't see that yet. I think it's going to be coming down the pipeline over time. But essentially what a patient really wants to do is get a doc, uh, get physicians um, and go to the place where they do the, have the most experience in their specific field, um, also where they feel comfortable. So make it a sense of uh, where they feel like they, you know, their their needs are being met. Uh, they want to feel special and, and they feel like they're, they're not just a number. So do, do their homework, um, talk to other patients. There are blogs out there talking about um, where patients can talk with each other about their experiences at their respective places. So uh, as a patient, the most important thing is trying to get more information to find the best place for them and also get second or third opinions because you want to make sure that, you know, they can make the most informed decision of how their health care goes. And I always talk about when someone is sick, it's not just that person, but it's the whole family oh, yes. or the whole support system. Can you talk about what we as uh, family and friends can do to support? I think it's it's a big, um, it's very important to basically support the person who has the cancer because it's interesting uh, being on the other side as a physician, delivering the bad news, counseling a patient's Many times when I see I have a patient there, especially if they're by themselves, they're in shock. Yes. So it's hard to process all the information. Right, right. So, so it's best to have family there, friends there, um, 
And the reason being is they can take notes. They can be their, they can be their eyes and ears. Um, because a lot of times they're just, you know, dealing with why, you know, the questions of the depression of why me, why me, what do I do about my children or whatnot. So having that emotional support, having them just there just to kind of make sure they understand everything is right is, is very important. Um, I find, I always, if I know that a patient's coming, encourage a patient to bring his family or friends um, as many as they they can because it's you know it's obviously a big uh, it's a very big help um, for uh, for the patient themselves and that's even from the beginning that you know basically the start of treatment and uh, to you know the follow-up care I think it's important to have them there very very much so and dr. Lau where can we go to find more information and get help you know, so typically uh, you can go to what I recommend uh, patients do is, you know, get a, uh, go look on the Internet, go to the, for cancer specifically, you can go to the NIH website, uh, National Institutes of Health. Also go to the, the local cancer centers' websites. Um, it, uh, those are good ways to start to get more information. For cancer specifically, if you are more advanced in, you know, doing the research, there's something called the, NCCN guidelines, and it's basically the consortiums of the cancer centers throughout throughout the United States, and they actually create the algorithms and they suggest suggestions of how to diagnose, how to treat uh, patients, how to follow the patients afterwards, and that's readily available. Uh, that's the NCCN uh, guidelines committee, so uh, you can find that for brain cancer to, all the way down to, to the colon cancer. So those are good, good places to start. All right. Well, again, I thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge. And I know it's hard for you to take the weekends out to talk, so I'm truly grateful. Thank you, Dr. Clayton Lau. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Laferne Cusack here for ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.